That's what grace is. Can I say it again? Grace is not a force or a gift per se. It is the gift of God himself being active in you, giving you the power and the desire to obey him. Greetings on this Lord's Day. Before I begin, I want to say thank you to Grace Church Austin for, first of all, the invitation to come. Secondly, for your hospitality, your kind provision of our needs. We've lacked nothing. But most of all, thank you for your love that you've bestowed upon us. You've made our hearts warm with your affection. And we know that that is an expression of the love of God in you towards us. Thank you so very much. A personal word to you. Take it for what it's worth. I know that you are praying, you're seeking for God's direction, and rightly so. We do not want our will, but the will of our Father, even as our Lord prayed, not my will, thy will be done. But I want to encourage you to believe God, to trust God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed. If I wanted to, I could give you hours of personal testimonies of answers to prayer. Some of you would call them miracles, and in some cases they were. But in most cases, it's just God keeping his word, as we heard the text in 2 Peter chapter 1. Divine promises. He's a promise-keeping God. And so I want to exhort this church to believe and trust God for a godly shepherd and for a fixed and permanent location. Do not be assuaged, moved in your confidence that God is able to do that for you. If it be the Lord's will that you not continue, well, praise be to God. You say, how could we be thankful for this? Because God's will is always the best. But if it is be God's will for you to be a light in a place that is very dark, Then all hell can come against you, but it will not prevail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against God's people doing God's will. When you pray, remember you're coming to a king. And as Newton in that song reminds us, large petitions with thee bring. You glorify God most when you believe him for most big things. Things that are in his will. You have two major things that are huge. A man of God. Preachers are a dime a dozen. Men of God are very rare and few. But God has a man. And then he has a place for you. If he's the God of all creation, he can make a place. (laughs) He can speak it into existence. Don't doubt him. Believe him. And so take that for what it's worth. If it's of the Lord, may it be quickened to your heart. The text I pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us is Paul's epistle to the Romans, once again, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I want to speak in this last session with you the true pursuit of joy, the true pursuit of joy. Here is the only biblical way to live and experience the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. When you are in God's will, trusting God completely, The joy that that brings to the Father becomes your strength. The joy of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen carefully. Look at verse 4. And answer internally. How is verse 4 to be accomplished in you? The righteous requirement of the law. In other words, not the letter of the law. Not just external obedience to God's commands. But the spirit of the law. The aim of what those commands are all about. To be like the Father. To be righteous as God is righteous. How is that to be fulfilled in you when we know, as we have clearly explained Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that we are, as Martin Luther said, simul ustus et peccator. Let me explain. That's Latin to mean simultaneously righteous and a sinner. In other words, the Christian at the same time, is perfectly righteous, but he's also still yet a sinner. Now, there are those who would argue in in defense of of the idea that the Christian is no longer a sinner but a saint. And I would wholeheartedly agree we are saints. But how many sins does it take to be a thief? How many times do you need to steal in order to be a thief? How many times do you need to tell a lie to be a liar? Just one. How many sins does it require to be a sinner? Just one. And as we learned Friday, even in my best efforts like preaching to you today, there's enough of Michael Durham to pervert even my good actions now to condemn me. And so how then can the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us? Look how Paul begins our text, verse 1. He begins by stating our hope, our help, and this is salvation. Salvation is not being baptized in water by a preacher. It's not praying and asking Jesus to come into your heart. It's not joining a church. It's not being better than the average person. It's not doing good deeds, religious things. Reading Bible, praying prayers, even participating in the supper, the Lord's table. No. Salvation is to be made one with Christ. So that what is true about Jesus is true about you. Can that be said of you? If so, Paul is saying you are no longer under a state of guilt and penalty. You're no longer condemned by God. You are now accepted. But by verse 4, he writes that these who are in Christ will perform obedience and thereby fulfill the law. And the question is, how is that possible if I still break the law. <laughs> Do you understand the question? Is, is, it, isn't it a good question to be asking today? How can I be just, right in the eyes of God, if I'm still violating His commandments? How can this be? Now, some of you would answer this way. And if I am imposing a view on you that you don't believe, well, you have the right to stand up and say, Not I. But how many times do we really think this? We would say, well, in our state of being right with God, justified, declared innocent, Jesus obeyed the law for us. Ah, that sounds like an easy solution. If you're in Christ, his obedience is given to you as 
as the scripture says, given, put on your account, your record. You're not just forgiven of your sin. Listen, salvation is better than just forgiveness of sins. You're actually given the very obedience, perfection, and righteousness of his son who perfectly obeyed him. So, yes, I, I see that is a valid answer, but it's not complete enough. Not complete enough. In verse 4, Paul is also dealing with your performance, your obedience. Because he has stated in verse 2 that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is working in you. You have a divine energy working in you so that you too can be right in your obedience. Not just Jesus' obedience. But the power of the Holy Spirit is empowering, motivating you to do God's will in compliance to it. In fact, he uses a word in verse 4, walk, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The word walk always in the New Testament is talking about lifestyle, behavior, projection in which you are going, consistent projection, direction. So he's dealing with how we live, not just the state our position in the sight of God that we maintain. Look at what he says later in the chapter, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. That means to indulge our natural appetites as sin dictates, but to live uh, live according to it. But if we, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. God has called you in Christ to live as Christ. How's that possible? Well, Paul tells the Philippians, For it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. My favorite verse of them all, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave me himself for me. The question is this. Here it is. Please listen. How can you be saved by grace? God's free gift, God's goodness given to you even though you don't earn it because you can never earn it. You can never be good enough to earn it. That's grace. How can you be saved Delivered from his condemnation by grace and not works. And yet commanded to work and persevere in the faith, in obedience, with a warning of destruction if you don't do so. Do you see what seems to be a contradiction? And this is where the church has been divided for centuries and there's why there is this still this contention even in this room there are some of you who you battle that internally there's always this civil war going on in the inside of you you know God's grace is free and you can never earn it but yet you know he you're to pursue holiness and you fall so short and there's that friction Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 14. Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you won't forgive, God won't forgive you. I didn't sound like a, a procedure of grace, does it? Salvation by grace. Or what about this one? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter to the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Or how about Romans chapter 2, the same uh, epistle from which our text comes. Verse 6, God will render to each one according to his deeds. God will judge everyone in this room. Me, you, all of us will stand before him. And, and he's going to question us. 
And if you answer and try to deceive and pull the wool over his eyes, he's going to pull out the records. And the records are accurate. And he's going to judge you according to your actions, your behavior, internally, externally. Eternal life. Friends, the gospel hasn't changed this. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. They get eternal life. Who strive for that? But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what do they get? Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. It doesn't sound like a salvation by grace, does it? That was a question. You can shake your heads one way or the other at me. Does that sound like a salvation by grace? Not at all. And salvation by grace does not remove this text. Paul is explaining your predicament. You see, our predicament is God and that he's perfectly righteous. That's our problem. And it's even worse. We're not righteous like God. And God still has the same standard. Jesus dying on the cross did not remove that God demands from you perfect rightness. That was the whole problem with that young rich ruler Thursday night. He knows. He knows the word of God enough. And he's watched Jesus enough to know something's, something's still not right with me. There's something missing. And so he runs and falls before Christ and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the right question. You and I in our 21st century American evangelicalism would say, no, 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 no. There's nothing for you to do. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, go and sell what you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. That's action. That's something required. What about what Paul says to to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Does that sound like salvation by grace? Hebrews 3.14 For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If Christ saves us by grace apart from works, then my question to you today is why must we do these works as part of our relationship with him in this gospel of grace. And in addition to those verses, well, I could, I could just for, for probably 15, 20 minutes start re- just by memory reciting what God requires of us in the scriptures, such as read the Bible, pray, witness, assemble with other saints, give out of our resources, forgive those who wound us, serve according to our spiritual gifts. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices, renew our mind, and refuse to be conformed to this world. The Bible places the requirement of all believers to care for the poor, exhort one another daily, rebuke an erring brother or sister, be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. We're commanded not to lie, to steal, or lose our tempers, or to work for our own living. We're told we're not to worry, hate, or gossip. How are you doing with that one? We're told not, no corrupt communication should proceed from our mouths. The Bible commands Christians to be kind, tender-hearted, to love one another. These are not suggestions. This is God's will by which you and I shall be judged. They're compulsory and must be done with all of our hearts. So the question again is this. How are we saved by grace without works? And if we don't do these commandments, we're lost. How can I have joy in Christ with that around my neck as a burden? And how can I have joy if I cannot perfectly obey? You see, some of you are really troubled right now and you think I'm almost bordering on heresy because we've departed from the gospel of the apostle Paul and Christ and the other apostles. This is the way they preached. 
they pressed upon the conscience and heart of their hearers a holy, righteous God. And that, my friend, is your standard by which you will be measured. You're not going to be measured by the Ten Commandments. You're going to be measured by God's own goodness. How do you measure up? How are you doing? No wonder you're so joyless. Salvation by grace does not cancel obedience. It does not say works are not necessary. Rather, listen carefully, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God makes doing God's commands possible. The Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus works in me. And the grace of God is in you in the person of Christ. Grace is not just a commodity given to you. It's not the Star Wars philosophy, the force be with you. Grace is not a force. Grace is not some inanimate object or gift. No, 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 no. Listen carefully. Grace is God himself active in you. It is God active in you. That's what grace is. Can I say it again? Grace is not a force or a gift per se. It is the gift of God himself being active in you, giving you the power and the desire to obey him. So the grace of God is the indwelling Christ That is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is preaching. That's the good news. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Is Christ in you? Is he active? Do you know him? Is there something in you that even though when you sin, you're pressed with a sorrow that's not fearful of the consequences, but Broken over his heart and the relationship and the fellowship being strained? Is there something that motivates you to pick yourself up and to go to him and say, Oh God, if you don't, I can't. But I know that thou art willing. For if you mark iniquities, who could stand before you? None of us could stand. But oh Lord, thou art abundant in grace and mercy. Ready to forgive. That's Christ in you. That's how the Spirit of God works in us. So let's recap this week. I want to tie up all the loose ends. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For what the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, has made me free from the law of sin and death. And then verse 3, pay attention for what the law could not do what the law God's commands holy good just commands God who directs orders your allegiance and has the right to do so and yet even his orders his directives his commandments his law could not do something there is an inadequacy For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now listen very carefully. There are some of you who believe that you're right with God because your lifestyle is good. You have religion where others don't. You don't mock God or the things of God. You have a respect for that. Even a dignified respect of that. But complying to religious rules, whether they're from the mouth of God or they're man-made, cannot save. Listen to what Paul says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. The law, God's commands, were not given to you to be able to be comply and work your way into his good presence. They were given so that you might know that you need a savior. They were given to you to show you how far, uh, how far f- 
short of God and His glory you have fallen. They are given to us to prove to us that we're nothing like Him. We're not right. We're not good. We're not obedient. We're not kind. We're not loving. We're not hospitable. We're not merciful. We're nothing like Him. And the law was to show us that because the law reveals His heart, His character. And when you come short of it, when you transgress it, it should say to you, you need help. You need a deliverer. You need a rescue. You're drowning here and you need somebody to save you. You see, the law is perfect. The weakness is its operation in the flesh. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's when the law is worked in our hearts, there's the problem. Let me give you an illustration. I was using an axe one day and the handle broke. The axe itself was good. The weakness was in the wooden handle. And Paul is saying the law is holy, the law is just, the law is good because it's nothing more than a reflection of God's character. The weaknesses of the law is it's got to work through human fallen flesh. And that fallen human flesh can never be as good as God. Are you with me? Does this make sense so far? You do understand. That if you don't commit adultery, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't lie, you believe in the one true God, you keep His moral commandments that you cannot get into heaven that way, right? You do understand that. Why do you understand that? Because you've been made to know that even though on the outside in your external behavior you may pass the grade, on the inside you're not doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it for your glory. Your preservation. Your good. And that, my friend, is the heart of sin. For all have sinned. And what does he say sin is? Coming short of the glory of God. You starting to see this? By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified right in the sight of God. For by the law is The knowledge of sin. God gave you the law to show you just how unlike Jesus you really are. And therefore the law cannot work righteousness because even sin uses the law for its strength. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The strength of the law is sin. And so what is our hope? We'll look at verse 3 again. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. God did. The law could never get the people of God into the land of promise. Moses was not even able to do so. But there came a young man named Joshua. By the way, whose name spelt in the Greek is Jesus. He was able to get them in the promised land. The symbolism is powerful. What the law could not do. Christ could. He gave him a picture with these two men. Moses was never going to make it to the promised land. Why? Because he represented the law. And the law can never bring you into promise, hope, safety, plenty, bounty. No, no. But Christ, Yeshua, Joshua, God is my salvation as the name means. He can and he has. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his son. He sent the standard of rightness into the world. It wasn't that young rich ruler. It was the man and standing before him to whom he knelt. There's the standard. What that young rich ruler should have understood, I can't inherit eternal life. I can't be as good as this one standing before me, God in flesh. Oh, have mercy upon me, a sinner. If he would have prayed that, he would have went home justified, accepted, saved. 
Here he is in the likeness of sinful flesh. This means he was in every way like you and me, a human being, even experiencing the weakness that we feel and the imperfection of our humanity without the corruption of sin. Please look at Christ right now. Look away from the speaker and see him. As you have read the Gospels, look, there he is. He could experience exhaustion, hunger, and death. And of course, he did die, didn't he? Do you know that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day of his his life? And he was redeemed by two turtle doves according to the law. Think of that. The Son of God, manifest in flesh, had to be redeemed. The firstborn, according to the law, had to be redeemed. And yet he's perfect. But he's redeemed according to the law. He was baptized by John, a baptism of repentance. And he had no sins to repent of. What is he doing? He's demonstrating to us, I'm like you. I identify with you. Yes, I've never sinned. I've been perfectly obedient to my Father. But I want you to know, I so identify with you so that you can identify with me. And trust me with your sins. Trust me for your righteousness. In the likeness. Why didn't Paul just say he came in the flesh? Just leave it at that. Why does he add the words in the likeness? Because though he is in human flesh, he's not the same as our human flesh, is he? He was without sin. He didn't have the fallen Adamic nature. He had a nature as Adam had before the fall, not ruined by sin, perfect, inclined to obey, not disinclined as you and I. And listen carefully, just as the brazen serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, So that if anybody looked at that brazen serpent, they could be healed of the poison of serpents that had been sent into the camp of Israel as a means of judging them for their sins. Even Jesus said, if I be lifted up. Look at the brazen serpent. It looked just exactly like the snakes, the serpents that were biting the people and bringing death. But it looked like them, but it was not like the snakes. It was without poison without corruption here it is another picture here comes the son of god he looks like sin he identifies with it he even is baptized for repentance and redeemed by the law and yet he's not like us he perfectly obeyed the law of god he did everything god required in your place for you when john the baptist says, no, I should be baptized by you. Jesus argues, John, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, meaning not only does my father want me to do this, he wants me to do this so that I even represent repentance. I perfectly repent for those who will never perfectly repent. Me, you. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. Friends, you've never repented properly. (laughs) But he who knew no sin, I don't understand it, but he was able to do it for me. In the likeness, but not the same. He condemned sin in the flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is ironic of God. You see, sin's mastery over us It's through our fallen human nature, the flesh, all of these evil tendencies to be our own God. You you know, you can draw a circle around you and, and in that circle you can say, I'm the Lord of this ring. And that's what this is all about. Two kingdoms, your kingdom and God's kingdom. And Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning, he stopped and defeated sin through the very vehicle that sin had used to get the mastery over you. Your fallenness. Your fallen human nature. The purpose is more than just the removal of the penalty, though. This is where most of us stop. And this is why our gospel is so incomplete and weak. 
We come to the second problem of sin that I talked about Friday. And that's the power of sin to control us. And there's two laws fighting for supremacy. Look at verse 4. Here they are. The flesh and the spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law of the flesh is subject and vulnerable to the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we talked about yesterday. See, I'm tying up all these loose ends. The deceitfulness of sin is exactly what Satan strategized against Eve when he said, in essence, Eve, trust yourself that you can be your own God, that you better than God can know what's best and good for you. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Every time you're tempted, every time, doesn't matter what it is, the underlying deceitfulness Of the temptation is this, that somehow you can't trust God. You need to trust your own instincts. They're better at determining what makes you happy than God's instinct. Does that make sense? Because if it doesn't, shake your head. I'll, I'll come at it from a different direction. You've got to understand that. This is your dilemma. It's my dilemma. Christian or non Christian, truly saved, think you're saved, but not. This is our dilemma. That we have something instinctive in us that thinks we know better than God. Some of you have already come to that conclusion. Just listen to me for these several minutes. You've already concluded. I hear what you're saying, but that works for you. But it's, it's working right now in you. How do I know that? Because the book says this. This is the deceitfulness of sin. That's its argument right now. Are you going to believe the lie of hell? Or are you going to believe your creator who made you and wants to bless you, has given you all the good things you've ever enjoyed in this life or will ever enjoy? Are you going to believe your own instincts? Or are you going to believe a righteous, holy God who loved you to give his son for you? Come on. Think. Ask God to help you to think correctly about this. You need God to help you even to process this at this moment. Oh, that God in His mercy would show you that what I'm saying to you is not clever devices of human wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. It was the only way to help you and to rescue you from you. You are your problem. It's not the devil. It's not your neighbor. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your mother, your father. It's not your environment. It's not your social economic status. You are your own problem like I'm my own. And the only way to deliver me is to bring me And me and mine under a new realm and power. And that is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that is antithetical, the opposite of the flesh. Look at the law of the spirit of life. Where do we see this terminology? Well, you see it all over the New Testament, but namely Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Can I be honest? I still have lust. Lust simply means it's just the word desire. I have desires. I got a whole bunch of them. And so do you. God made you to have desires. Desires are a good thing. But that can be used against us. Sin always begins, according to the Apostle James, with a desire. Always Not with Satan's temptation. They always begin inside of you with a desire. Remember I said yesterday, I've never had a desire to rob a bank. So I'm never tempted to rob a bank. But I have desires that I am tempted by. And so Paul is saying to Christians, you've got to walk in the Spirit. Meaning, you've got to be influenced. You've got to be influenced, energized by the Spirit so that you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. For, verse 17, the flesh, the flesh lusts, wars, strives, desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that you're not able to do the things that you would. 
So which one prevails? You and your desire to do what you think's best because you think you know better than God or the Spirit who will always direct you according to God's wisdom and will. Which one prevails? And here it is. Are you listening? Say amen for me. Wake up your neighbor. The law, the law of the flesh, or the law of the spirit that is fed the most is the strongest. Now, I'm not here talking about the good Indian and the bad Indian, the black dog and the white dog. Chris knows what I'm talking about, and a few of you others know that illustration. That's not what I'm talking about. You do have flesh as a Christian, fallen human nature with all of its desires and propensities. And you also have the Holy Spirit living within you. Your spirit, the new man, the inner man. Which one's the strongest? The one you feed. What constitutes or determines which law or principle you will feed the most? Are you listening? The one you trust the most. Goes back to faith. (laughs) If you trust the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, then you'll obey it, which means you're feeding it. Faith feeds it. However, if you trust the law of the flesh, you'll obey it, which is feeding it. Listen very carefully. These two are so antithetical. And every person who's a Christian in this room knows this. If you're not a Christian, you don't know what I'm talking. You don't know about this struggle. You don't have this kind of struggle. Only Christians do. Because Christians, we still have what you have. This inner desires that want to do what we think is best and not trust God. We, we have that too. But in addition to that, which you do not have, we have the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit, the, the person of Christ working in us. And these two are working against. And the only one that will prevail is the one that I feed. So listen carefully. The moment I feed my spirit in faith on the things of God, my spirit gets stronger and automatically my flesh gets weaker. But the moment I feed the flesh and cater to it, thinking I know better than God, my flesh gets a little stronger and my spirit gets weaker. Which are you feeding consistently? You see, your flesh is always going to be what it is, an untamable tiger. A ferocious beast that you'll never tame. I know that there are men who make a living out of taming wild lions and tigers. But some of those men who've become famous also have been killed by those same beasts that they supposedly trained. Because the tiger is still a tiger. And your flesh is always going to be wicked on this side of heaven. Impure, less than perfect, unholy. Fallen. And the only thing you can do with it is to recognize that and to cage it. Bring it into submission, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9. Bring it into submission. And how do you do that? By starving it. Starving it till it's weakened more and more and gradually and the spirit gets stronger and stronger. Faith arises. Faith grows. Faith becomes stronger. You've proven God over and over again and you've found He's faithful. Not your great faith. His great faithfulness. And the flesh becomes caged in submission. That is how you walk in the Spirit. That is what this text is saying. Is there a difference between our willpower exerted to obey God and the willpower of the Holy Spirit? You better believe there is. What's the difference? Are you listening? Here's the difference. There are days that the Christian does not feel as strong as he does or she does other days. 
You don't want to plow into the Bible and study and meditate. You don't feel like praying because prayer doesn't feel easy that day. You, you, you may not feel very cordial and therefore you don't care to be kind and tenderhearted. We all know what we're talking about. There are times people wound us and we want to retaliate. It's just natural. Why? Because it's flesh. And the flesh wants to do what's best for it. Take control. Reap justice. Don't let people wound you or hurt you. These are real feelings and they're part of the flesh working. The mind, the body are easily fatigued, distressed, distracted, apathetic. In the past, now please listen to this. In the past, I would have said to people listening, here's what you've got to do. You've got to grab yourself by the nap of the neck and shake yourself and say, we're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray. If it's the last thing we're going to ever do, we're going to grit our teeth and we're going to do it. And reach down deep and you do it even if you don't feel like it. But that's misleading. That's wrong. Why? Because it's not biblical. Not biblical at all. Yes, you must assert your will. Yes, you must enact self-discipline that the Lord gives you. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But the weakness of that statement is that it promotes a reliance on the very flesh we're trying to corral, bring into control. The statement's wrong because it's missing a crucial element. It's wrong because it's relying on the willpower of the self upon you. The willpower of the self always looked to self. That's the problem. You become your own Savior, which in essence is the same problem with Eve in the garden you better than God knows what's best for you. Did you hear that? This is not psychological babble. This is Bible, friends. This is the way we're wired. This is the way we are in this present state, unglorified, not fully redeemed. This is the issue. Do you look to self or do you look to Christ? The willpower that the Holy Spirit gives always, always looks to Jesus. Look and live. Look. Look unto Him. There's your Savior. There's your Messiah. There's your Deliverer. There's the one who can lift you up out of the miry clay and set your feet on the rock to stay. Here's the one who's the champion who went down into the valley and killed and slew the giant of sin and the law of sin and death. And He can help you over your flesh. Oh, church of Jesus Christ arise in praise and worship we have a champion we have one who's overcome all forces of darkness and evil and he's come out the victor he's conquered even death itself and he's living within you and so Paul would say Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. Not just in the world, but in the world above and the world below. He's our king. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Look to him and live. He's your resource. He has what you have. And so, in humility, you say, Oh, Lord, you know better than me. You've been here, tempted far worse than I. And you, you overcame. You have what I need. So back to our question. How are we saved by grace apart from works? And yet commanded to do good works. Jesus indwells the believer by the Holy Spirit, giving the Christian the desire and the ability to obey God. But as I said yesterday, there is this, still this something in you that doesn't want to trust Christ explicitly, but to trust you. And therefore, your joy in the, quote, Christian life is really in you 
and your performance. I'm speaking to probably most of us in this room. There's very few of us who've come to understand and learn this yet. We're still babies. I'm still trying to get my sea legs. Doing better than I was, but I'm still not where I need to be. I'm still wanting to grow up into the image of my Savior. I still need conforming. I know what what I'm talking about because I'm, I'm there too. You often think you know better than God what's best for you. You believe the big lie. But that kills true joy because more than not, you fail to perform as you ought. In fact, the standard of performance, as we said a few moments ago, is not you, not even the Ten Commandments. It's Jesus Christ. And He performed in obedience perfectly. How do you measure compared to Him? The sinner who's not a Christian, cannot be righteous as God is. It's a moral impossibility. And there's your problem. But dear Christian friend, neither can you and I live righteously as God is righteous. In and of our own selves, this too is a moral impossibility. A few years ago, I was preaching in a tour through eastern Canada. I just finished a pastor's conference where I was speaking to a group of pastors over eastern Canada. And one of those pastors had prearranged that I would come and preach in his church the following day on Sunday. And as we were driving a couple of hours to his city where he pastored, he just began to unload and become very transparent with me and began to say how miserable he was how discouraged he was. He said, you know, the more I try to do what's right, I just feel like I keep failing. My prayer life is miserable. uh, It's hard to shepherd the people of God because I'm miserable most of the time and I don't know how to help them in their misery. I'm just, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And I said to him, this Your problem is this. It's real simple. You're not able to rejoice in the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace, and that's what you will always be. He says, I don't understand. What do you mean? I said, you think about it for 24 hours, and when you take me back to where I need to be the next day, if you haven't figured it out, then I'll tell you. And, of course, he hadn't a clue what I meant the day before. And so he says, what did you mean? And I said, it's real simple. You're trying in your own strength to live the Christian life and do what God wants you to do. But you're discovering what the Bible's already told you. You can't do that. You'll never be good enough. And so all God is wanting to show you is you can trust Him. And that forever, even when you're in heaven glorified, can't even sin, can't be tempted to sin, you're still going to be in heaven as one who was a sinner saved by grace. And that should be your joy. But like us, we don't want to be just saved by grace. We then want to prove we were worthy of that grace. We want to show God that we were a reasonable investment. And... We want to prove that mainly to ourselves. Deep down, we're not satisfied to be a sinner saved by grace. We cannot rejoice completely, thoroughly, that apart from Christ, I am doomed. I'm doomed today. Do you hear me? That's why those hymns mean so much to me that we sing. It was my sins that was placed upon him. I get that. Today's sins. I can't even obey God like I should now that I'm his and even one of his servants. I need him. I need his righteousness. We really don't understand what it means to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus alone. That means that God declares you righteous, satisfactory, acceptable through the substitutionary work of Christ. And because you are in Him, your sins will never, ever be put 
on your account because they were put on his account. And he paid for every one of them. Every one of them. Every prayer, every church service, every sermon I've ever preached was put upon him because even in those good deeds, there was enough self-righteousness to damn me to the lowest, the lowest part of hell. Because here's what salvation is. I know I've kept you long, but I'll never, may never get another time to talk to you. Here's what salvation is. Salvation is not missing hell and gaining eternal life in a place we call heaven. I say that's the fringe benefit. Salvation is this. Please listen. Salvation is to be considered as righteous as God is. That's what salvation is all about. Salvation is to be righteous because God can only commune and have intimacy and fellowship with that which is like Him. Him. There's only one way to be right like God. And that is in and through Christ. God the Father gives you His Son's perfection on your record. His obedience. Every good. Every success over temptation and sin. All of that is given to you. And what did He get in return? What did He get in return? Your sin and its condemnation. Its penalty. Dear sinner, do you understand? The only hope for you today is Christ. Being in Him like a refuge, like a hiding place. Run to Him. Your goodness will never save you. It will only make you more worthy of God's judgment. It's to reject the only true righteousness, God's righteousness, the only kind of righteousness He accepts, and to substitute it with your own. Why, you are a devil in human flesh. You're opposing God as Lucifer, Satan opposed Him. Worthy is your damnation. Worthy was mine. Until in his kindness he showed me that there was no way I could do this. Brother, listen to me. I preached my first sermon the day after my 15th birthday. Trying to earn what I'm telling you. Talking about God's righteousness. And for the next 11 years... I was trying to climb the religious ladder, trying to do everything that I thought would make God like me. And the more I tried, the more I saw my sin. Until one day, God came to me and said, you're not mine. This has all been a farce, a pretense. It's like a house of straw. It shall not stand in the judgment It was the best day and the worst day of my life. I'm so thankful for that day because if I had not seen that by God's help, I would have kept on until I fell into hell when I closed my eyes in death. And rightly so. But God in His mercy opened my eyes. And a few months later, He then put Christ in me. I don't know how to explain that. There is no explanation. It's a miracle. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Somehow God does it. I believe it. I trust it. It's my only hope. And it is my joy. (laughs) It's my joy now. You say, but... But shouldn't I be better than I used to be now that I'm a Christian? Yes, you should. We must grow in holiness if we've been justified. And we will. But my question to you is this, dear Christian friend. Are you listening? How much better should you be? How much better? Let's suppose you're morally much better now than you were when you were first saved. How does that justify you? Is that the perfection of God? You could be near perfect in your behavior and one sin would be damning. How much better do you have to be, dear Christian brother, sister? Come on, tell me. How much better should you be? 
And so you can see you don't want to go down that road. And yet that's the road we go down. And therefore that road leads back to us trying to gain God's acceptance through the law. And the law, yes, it demands to do what it says. But grace says look to Jesus Christ and see he's already done it for you. And let me tell you my experience as I conclude. After 30, almost seven years of walking with him. I would like to say that I'm more holy than I was 37 years ago. Or I hope more than 10 years ago. I don't know. I'm not the best judge of my own heart. But I can tell you this. The longer I serve him. The more I see I need him. Because the more I see how wicked I really was. Friends, I'm just being honest. I think I'm more wicked now than I was the day he saved me. Truthfully, I'm not. I just see it better and more clearly now. The closer you get to Jesus, the more unholy you feel. The more you walk in the light, the more the light shines in the dark corners and crevices where sin hides. And if that's the case, then how can a holy man or woman have peace that they're right with God? If the closer you get to God exposes how far you are away from His likeness, how could you have joy and peace that you're indeed a child of God? Only one way, only one way. In faith in the finished work of Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1, I'm taxing you, I know, but I'm pleading for you. Plead with me. Please stay with me. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom by, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice, joy, boast in the glory of God. So do you see, the longer I serve him, my joy increases, not in me and my performance, but in him and his great love for me. That's how joy increases. That's the right pursuit of joy. Not in you, not in what you do, but in what he's done for you. And now today, I need him as much, if not more than I've ever needed him. I see how unworthy I am. I thought I was unworthy at the age of 26 that day in December 1986. I thought I was so unworthy. In fact, day after day I would get up and pray. Here was my sinner's prayer. God, you're too holy and too just to let me go to heaven. I've got to go to hell and pay for your sins. How that, how's that for a sinner's prayer? I was trying to tell God he couldn't save me. I felt the unworthiness. Of his love and acceptance. But I tell you today, I know it more than I've ever known it. I've proven to myself how big a wretch and vile I really am. But my joy is not in that or in that I can do better. My joy is that he's already done it. He's my refuge. I'm in him. Therefore, what's true about him is true about me and every one of you that belong to him. And so there you have it. My joy is no longer in me. It's not in my performance. It's not in my prayer life, my preaching, my ministry, my relationship, how well my children perform. It's not in anything I do because I can't do it like Jesus can do it. I thank God for a Savior who is sanctifying me and will one day glorify me. If your hope's not in Christ alone, then I pray today, renounce your self. Deny yourself. Run to Christ. Amen. And amen. How many of you would say, God is, I see it. For the very first time, I see. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is my hope. Oh, I'd love to pray and talk with you. If, If this is you, after the service is over, please come. I'd like to talk, pray with you, help you as you begin your journey in Christ, save you from some major mistakes I've made, if I could. 
If that's happened to you, praise be to God. That's a miracle. There may be some of you who would say, you know, I've heard this now for these four days and I thought I was a Christian when I came here. Everybody else thought I was too, but God has revealed to me I have been nothing more than a rectarian trying to do what was right, believing what I know to be true, having right doctrine but not right fellowship with God. And God has convicted me. God has shown, man, I really want to talk to you. You come. Let me talk with you. I can't save you, but I can point you to the one who can. And if you're a Christian and God has exposed you and love and mercy rebuked and realigned and renewed, well, shall we not have reason to rejoice in the table a little bit more than we did before we came or before this meeting? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Savior, thank you for this great and glorious gospel. Gospels far deeper than our intellect can dive, far higher than our wisdom can climb. Oh, blessed is thy name, for, oh, Father, you devised such a plan, and we worship you. Help us now as we look at the table and remember that he died not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but its power, and to bring us into proper fellowship with you, in Jesus' name. Amen.